0: Thank you, Matt and music team, for leading us before God's throne of grace. If you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the rack in front of you. You Turn to the letter of the Galatians. Last week we talked about what. Gospel ministry looks like and how it is done in weakness, and uh, as almost if as if to answer that uh, that good gospel ministry is done in weakness, God brings us to one of the most difficult passages in the most difficult passage in Galatians and probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, so that my weakness will be very apparent um, I'm going to try my best uh, to help us all understand uh, and apply God's word to us in this passage but just be uh forewarned it's uh it's going to be a little bit of a mental journey all right um, before uh before I do this let's just I want to walk through this letter very quickly uh give you an overview so hopefully you can understand uh what Paul is doing in the passage we're going to read today before we, before we read it. Um, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Galatians very, uh, over, over several weeks now. Uh, and so if you would, you can go ahead and get your Bible and, and flip to the beginning of uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I'm just going to kind of run you through what would be an outline. It's not neat and tidy, but it gives you a sense of the flow of Paul's thought. Uh, In chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, Paul identifies himself and the problem that he's addressing in the letter. And then, through the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul defends his message and authority autobiographically. Uh, he tells his own story. He reminds them of his authority from Jesus, where he gets the authority to preach this message that he's preaching. Uh, where he gets the message itself from, and so that's chapter one ten through chapter two verse fourteen. And then in chapter two verses fifteen through twenty one, that's really where he states his gospel, his uh, his good news. This is the, we could say that's kind of the heart of the letter, his thesis statement, if that doesn't take you back uh, to like, you know, 10th grade English, uh, unfortunately. But his main argument could be found in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, where he tells us that we are made right with God by trusting in the work of Jesus and not in our obedience to the law. That is the message of Galatians. And now what Paul does is he reiterates that message with several different arguments. And that's what he does in chapters 3 through 4. He defends, so he's defended himself and his message autobiographically. Then in chapters 3 and 4, he defends his message theologically. And we've seen him use different arguments from the Bible as well as from everyday life. And now here at the end of chapter 4 in verses 21 through 31, Paul, like a good teacher or like a good preacher, is going to pull his argument together with an illustration. Um, But, be forewarned, for us, that illustration is going to be something of a challenge to understand. Uh, And so this is one of those times when we say, uh, we we need to remember that the Bible was not originally written to us. Uh, it was written to other people in a time uh, long, long ago. Uh, and we have to kind of cross over the, the ditch of history to understand the original, uh, the, the original context of its writing before we can move back into the present to understand how it applies to us. I'm going to do my best. Some of us may fall into the ditch. All right? So with that, uh, with that said, let's give our attention to God's Word in Galatians 4. 21 through 31, Paul writes this, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what do the scriptures say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And while grass withers and flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Almighty God. God. Would you give us mental clarity this morning? We're going to need it. Would you swipe away the the cobwebs that might make our brains dusty on a Sunday morning? And would you help us to apply ourselves to understanding what it is that you have spoken and written for us here? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that is a doozy, isn't it? Um, what in the world is Paul talking about, right? He mentions Abraham's two sons. He's talking about Hagar and Sarah. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament uh, and you're not familiar with the kind of argument that Paul is using, then you can end up lost as a goose, right? So what I'm going to try to do this morning uh, is, is try to walk us through that. Uh, and, and how do you walk through something that's very hard to understand? You ask questions, right? Uh, this is, uh, when my, my first major at Alabama was in journalism, uh, and they trained us to ask questions, right? A good reporter asks questions to try to gain understanding so that he can then share the story with others. And so this morning, I've got four questions that we're gonna try to answer. First, who is Paul talking to? Second, what is the history? What's the background that Paul is referring to? Third, how does Paul use that background, that history? And then fourth, what in the world does that have to do with us? How do we apply that today? So first, let's let let's tackle who. Who is Paul addressing this to? And if you look in verse 21, he tells you, he says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. What does that mean to want to be under the law? It cannot mean to want to obey the law, because as we're going to see when we get into chapter five, that Paul does have commands From God for us to obey. There are things that Christians do and don't do. So if you've been kind of walking with us through Galatians the whole time, we've been saying repeatedly that our acceptance with God is not earned by our obedience. And that might prompt you to ask, like, oh, well, then is obedience not important? Do we just kind of write the law off altogether? And the answer to that question is no. And we're going to see as we close out Galatians over the next few weeks, as we get into chapters 5 and 6, that there actually is obedience. That there is a way that Christians are supposed to live. But the key distinction, right, is that we don't earn our place with God by that obedience. Obedience is our response to God, not what we do to earn favor from God. Okay? So, when Paul talks about being under the law... He's not talking about wanting to obey the law. If you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, if you are a true believer, you will want to obey God's law. That's not who Paul is talking to. He's talking to those who want to be under the law. Under is a good uh, is a good word there. Um it means rely under the burden of the law. Think of think of the law as this yoke which is exactly how the Pharisees talked about taking on the yoke of the law, right? Putting this heavy yoke on your shoulders uh, and trying to pull uh, the weight of a plow or something else behind you, right? So I think of like uh, those World's Strongest Man competitions where these guys like put on these harnesses and then try to like pull a truck, okay? That's being under the law, uh, except that... In this case, the law, the truck, doesn't budge. Right? So you're just stuck. You're just under its burden. Uh, To be under the law is to rely on the law to prove yourself to God. It is self-reliance, not God-reliance. That's what it means to be under the law. And what Paul does... To convince us that this is not a good way to go is he says, do you not listen to the law? So what he does next is he takes the very thing that these people would have been trusting in. And he says, let's go back to those scriptures. Let's go back to that law that you would be trusting in. And I want to show you how the law is insufficient to do what you want it to do. And he does it by going back to the story about Abraham and about Abraham's two sons. So that's who Paul is talking to. And then we're going to now we're going to ask, answer the question, what is the history? What is the background that Paul is standing on? Now, before we kind of go through that uh, a quick version of that history, you need to know that to be Jewish particularly in Paul's day, to be a thoroughgoing Jewish person was to be exceedingly proud of your connection to Abraham. Your identity was in your ethnic heritage. You're, you are a son or a daughter of Abraham. We, for instance, see when Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders in John chapter eight, He's trying to convince them of their sin. and they say, "Well, we're the sons of Abraham." He tries to convince them that they're in slavery, and he says, we're, we're, "We're the sons of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone." And Jesus, very gingerly, not quite, looks at them and says, "If you were Abraham's sons, you would do what Abraham did. But you're trying to kill me. You are not sons of Abraham. You are you're, you are sons of your father, the devil." That's how gingerly Jesus put it to people who were resting in their ethnic heritage. Right? They they felt like, man, because I am Abraham's son, I am. Uh, I am invincible. I'm untouchable. And Jesus says, not so fast. And so Paul is doing the exact same thing, right? Uh, What Jesus said was, you may be physically related to Abraham, but you are not spiritually related to Abraham. And what that tells us is acceptance by God is not automatic. You do not automatically come into a right relationship with God. No one, there are are no second generation Christians. No one is born into the kingdom. Everyone must enter it by faith. And that's what Jesus is saying, Uh, that's what Paul now says here. If you want to to go back and read some of the background of this this history that Paul is referring to, you'll find the story in Genesis 16 and 17 and 18, and then in uh, chapter 21, if you want to go back and read it. I'm going to give you the summary of it this morning, though. So if you remember, we've talked about this before because Paul draws on this argument a lot. Um, He talks about how God had promised to Abraham that he would give him offspring, and you remember that Abraham and his wife Sarah, they have no children. They are barren. And so God's promise to them uh, that they would have offspring, that he would have offspring, uh, and that, that offspring would bless the nations, that was, a, that was a beautiful promise to them. But after that promise, years went by. And still, Abraham and Sarah had no children. And so, what Abraham and Sarah do... Is they try to decide, or they try to help God keep His promise? You ever done that before? Well, God said He was going to do this. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll give him a little help. It's exactly what Abraham and Sarah do. They hatch this plan. Sarah does uh, to let Abraham sleep with her servant Hagar, and their great idea is that the son born of that union would be the heir, would be that promised child that they've been waiting for. That happens in Genesis 16. Son is born. His name is Ishmael. But in Genesis 17, God very clearly tells Abraham that Ishmael is not the heir. That Ishmael will not uh, receive the promise that God will give Abraham a son through Sarah. And one year later, he keeps that promise. Isaac is born. And what's remarkable is that Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90. Now, I feel like we had children late uh, in, our, in our late 20s because I felt like we did not have the energy to chase young children around. Um, but apparently, uh, Abraham has me beat. So I have nothing to complain about. Um, Abraham is 100. Sarah is 90. And so when Paul says that that Abraham has two sons, one is born according to the flesh, he means born the normal way, right? Born the normal human way. That's Ishmael. He says that son is the son of the slave woman, born into slavery because of his mother. The other son, Isaac, is born of the promise. He has to be born against nature. God has to work supernaturally in order for Isaac to be born. So you can begin to see what Paul is doing. One comes by human effort and ends up in slavery. One is born by God's free and sovereign grace and he is the one who inherits the promise. That's the history. That's the background uh, that Paul gives us. And now he uses that as an illustration to prove his point. He says in verse 24 that all of this may be interpreted allegorically or figuratively. Now, what we should say is that this is not the normal way of interpreting the Scripture. We don't go back to every single historical figure in the Bible and try to find some allegorical meaning. That's not the correct way to interpret the Bible, um, since Paul is doing it here and he's an inspired apostle, he can do that. But when the Bible itself doesn't do it, we shouldn't go looking for hidden meanings under every every rock, okay? And we should say that Paul is not discarding the history. If you go back and you read Genesis this week, you're not going to come away with a very rosy picture of Abraham or Sarah. They they did they made very human errors. Uh, they sinned in very egregious ways, and they hurt Hagar, who was a victim of their sin. Right? Paul is not condoning that behavior, nor did God condone that behavior. Right? Hagar was a victim of Sarah and Abraham's lack of faith in God's promise. They lacked faith in God, who had made the promise, and so they tried to accomplish the promise themselves. And that led to conflicts in their home and in their family, and that stretches even into our modern day uh, because history tells us that Ishmael uh, is the the father of the Arab nations. Uh, And so you can see, even today in the Middle East, how this conflict continues on from Abraham and Sarah's lack of trusting in God's promise. But what Paul does is he takes that very real history and those very real people and he kind of sets that aside for a minute and he says let's look at these things figuratively that's what that's what an allegory is where the characters in a story become uh, a symbolic representation of something else and he says this Hagar and Ishmael the slaves they represent Mount Sinai what's Mount Sinai what happened at Mount Sinai that's where the law was given And then Paul takes a step further, and he says that corresponds to, in his day, present-day Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism. And he says everybody in that line, born under that covenant of the law, they are enslaved under the law. They are born into slavery. But Isaac and Sarah, they represent those who come to God by faith whether Jew or Gentile. He says they are from the heavenly Jerusalem and are free. In other words, they are the true sons of Abraham. Now, how do you think that made the Judaizers, the false teachers, how do you think that made them feel? Furious. These were proud Jewish men who took great pride in their heritage, right? Just like those who argued with Jesus in John chapter 8, they were the true sons of Abraham. They considered themselves the true sons of Abraham through Sarah. And that Gentiles were the illegitimate sons of Abraham through Hagar. But Paul flips it around. He uses the very passage that they would have stood on in verse 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. The Judaizers would have stood on that verse and said, that's us. You want to become like us. Become Jewish like us so that you, because we are the true sons of Abraham through Sarah, you can inherit God's promise that way. Paul goes to that same verse and he says, no, and he flips it around. And he says, actually, you're the illegitimate sons. You're the ones in slavery because you're in bondage under the law. You're trying to come to God just like Abraham and Sarah did the first time. That's what that's what Paul's doing. He really, really, this isn't about Hagar and Sarah. This is about Abraham's two choices. Abraham chose to rely on himself. And he bore children for slavery. And then he chose to rely on God and bore children for freedom. And that's how Paul is using the allegory for us. And that's how we can begin to apply it to ourselves. You're either an Ishmael or an Isaac. You're either trying to come to God on your own terms, you're under the law. You're trying to earn your acceptance before him by doing certain things. And you're either an Ishmael or you're an Isaac. Not born under the law. That's where we all are naturally. That's that's where human effort gets you. But if you're an Isaac, it means that you have been born again. And you are born again set free by the grace of God. And so the question that we have to ask this morning is, which one are you? Are you an Ishmael or are you an Isaac? When you think about slavery, and it's what led me to Jeremiah 2, Jay, thank you for your vulnerability. Uh, Jeremiah 2 always undoes me. Um, even the song that we sang afterward. I mean, if you, if, you, if you want to try to gauge if you're in slavery, if you're under the law, do you feel like you're gasping? Do you feel like you're thirsty? Do you feel like every time you open your mouth, you're just shoveling dirt in? That's what it looks like to hew out a cistern for yourself in the desert. That's, that's the image that Jeremiah uses. He says, my people have forsaken me the spring of living water and have hewed out cisterns for themselves. I don't know we, uh, if you've ever seen a cistern, I remember uh, my brother spent some time in the Bahamas, and the, the camp that he lived at was somewhat run down, but the water supply for the showers and the faucets, uh, so the bathrooms and the kitchen, the water supply came from a cistern, which was basically a concrete hole with a piece of like corrugated plastic pulled over it, right, it's designed to catch rainwater, and then it just sits there. You don't want to brush your teeth with that. You don't want to drink that. Right? And what Jeremiah says, because they would do this in the desert, right? They would, they would carve out holes that would gather water, rainwater, and hopefully it would stay there. Uh, but if there's a seam or if there's a crack in the bottom of it, if you've ever tried to dig a pond and you discovered after a few rains that there was a, a hole in the bottom of it, right? What happens? All that water drains out, and what are you left with? Mud dirt that's what we are under the law that's that's what we're doing we're we're trying to hydrate ourselves by digging in the bottom of the cistern and shoveling muddy dirt into our mouths and god says i'm the fountain of living water that's always bubbling up fresh and clean come to me come satisfy your thirst in me and so the question is Are you an Ishmael or are you an Isaac? That's an invitation. As we pray, as we close in prayer this morning.